0: I'm interested in the play because it is so deeply political. I think it takes us into the theater of the political world and makes us aware of how people act, how they do things to other people with words and and actions, for better or for worse, how they build relationships, form community, and also experience feelings of love and loss, of, of togetherness and alienation. This is Shakespeare's war story. There are wars in many of Shakespeare's plays, but this is the play that really invites the spectator into the theater of war and and challenges us in those difficult circumstances to judge character and action fairly and also to judge how we make those judgments. So as we witness Henry and his Countrymen trying to form a community and to invade another nation, we see them pulling together but also pulled apart in conflict among themselves. And I, I think that the celebration of Henry's victories opens a window into the conflicts surrounding the conduct of war and the means of, of keeping the peace. So I, I think it's an invitation to moral judgment. I'm Stephen Foley, and I'm Associate Professor of English and Comparative Literature at Brown.
1: Welcome to Shakespeare for All. Today we're speaking with Professor Stephen Foley about Henry V. Shakespeare wrote a series of plays based on chronicles about England's past, commonly called history plays, and Henry V is one of the most celebrated of these. Written around 1599, it dramatizes the life of the historical English king, Henry V, who assumed the throne in 1413. He went to war with France to assert his claim to the French throne and won a dramatic victory in 1415 at the Battle of Agincourt. Shakespeare recounts this story in a play that not only depicts events from history, but represents the very process through which history is made. The most visible shaper of history in this play is the character of the chorus. In ancient Greek drama, the chorus was a group of characters representing the city or the society who offered commentary on the action in the play. Shakespeare's chorus similarly mediates between the play and the audience, always reminding us that we are watching a play. The chorus appears at the start of every act to give us background information, to forecast coming events, and, most significantly, to direct the way we interpret and imagine those events.
0: In the famous first chorus, the chorus calls for a muse of fire. He calls for an an animated reinvention of what history can be on the stage. and, And admitting that that's inevitably going to fail, he then calls upon the the audience to piece out our imperfections with your thoughts. Each one of the five choruses invokes the audience as the judge and interpreter of history. So in each one of the choruses, that same kind of contract is renewed and the audience is reminded that it is in their memories that the moral judgments of history are made and and that history itself is, is shaped.
1: The play opens with a prologue from the chorus, he or she calls for a muse of fire to inspire the play and calls on the audience to bring it to life in their imagination, to look at a handful of actors on a stage and to see two mighty monarchies contending on the field of Agincourt. But the play begins not with soldiers or armies, but with two clergymen in a political discussion. The bishops of Canterbury and Ely express wonder at King Henry's talent for politics. We hear that, as a prince, Henry showed no interest in learning to govern, but instead hung around taverns in Eastcheap with unlettered, rude, and shallow company, including the fat knight Sir John Falstaff. Now, however, Henry has cast off those companions to embrace the responsibilities of rule. What we see
0: here is Shakespeare using a folk motif of the transformation of the frog into the prince to create another sense of mystery about Henry in order to assert his almost magical rise as a king.
1: The bishops plan to win Henry's support for the church by helping him fund a war in France where, Canterbury hints, Henry has some true titles to the crown thanks to the military victories there of his great-grandfather King Edward III. Henry asks Canterbury about this supposed claim to the throne of France. The bishop embarks on a lengthy convoluted speech on the French law of succession. Henry's reply is short and to the point – May I with right and conscience make this claim? A great deal hangs on the answer. Even if Henry has some legal claim to the French crown, he can only attain it through war, and, as he reminds the bishop, never two such kingdoms did contend without much fall of blood. The bishop urges Henry to invade France and win his right. After encouragement from his counsellors, Henry resolves to go to war and claim the French crown. France being ours, we'll bend it to our oar, or break it all to pieces. His resolve is strengthened when the French prince sends a mocking message, a box of tennis balls. The prince doesn't realise what a capable king the once wild youth has become. The chorus says that all the youth of England are on fire to follow Henry, this mirror of all Christian kings, to war." The first recruits we see, however, are far from noble soldiers. They are the king's former companions from Eastcheap, Bardolph, Pistol, NIM, and Mistress Quickly. Their first scene is filled with comic squabbles over Mistress Quickly, but their second scene is more sober. They learn that the lusty, gluttonous and merry Falstaff is dead.
0: When we see Falstaff's death recounted by Mistress Quickly, this occurs at the very moment when we see Henry once again trying to prove himself an able king. And it doesn't undercut that that skillful governance on, on Henry's part but it's a touching scene of the loss of a former friend.
1: Henry then loses another friend. He learns that three English lords have been bribed by the French to assassinate him, including Lord Scroop, his most intimate confidant. Before he arrests them, he sets a kind of trap. He asks them how he should punish a man caught verbally abusing him. The traitors, making a show of loyalty, say the man should be given punishment, not mercy. He then arrests them for treason, saying his mercy has been killed by their own council. The chorus paints a vivid picture of the King's mighty fleet sailing across the Channel and invites the audience to leave your England and follow the King in their minds to France. The English army besiege the French city of Harfleur and Henry rallies his troops with a stirring speech. Once more unto the breach, dear friends, once more, or close the wall up with our English dead. In these lines we hear several hallmarks of Henry's oratory, his emphasis on camaraderie and brotherhood, and his appeal to national pride. On, on, you noblest English, he urges, follow your spirit, and upon this charge cry God for Harry, England and St George. But, once again, the play's optimistic rhetoric is somewhat undercut by the crew from Eastcheap. Immediately after Henry's stirring cry to rush into battle, we see Nim and Pistol hanging back, wishing they could trade all their fame from battle for a pot of ale and safety. We hear from their boy servant that these men have no bravery and came to France mainly to steal.
0: The play really is a series of of vignettes, each one representing a different segment of the society as it goes to war. And it develops a rich array of characters from all parts of the body politic, nobles, clergy, common soldiers, seasoned officers, and knaves, Welshmen, Irishmen, Scots. And these sets of characters move through the action of the play, constituting a set of tableaus, that reveal the conflicts and contradictions that crisscross the fabric of national unity. Pistol, Nim, uh, and Bartolf are sort of the soft, corrupt underbelly of that society. They are only in it for pleasure, for money. They are mere posers as warriors. So those characters, I think, are a correction to the illusion that there's a pure band of kinship that unites everybody.
1: We see another segment of society in a scene of disagreement among four captains the English Gower, the Welsh Fluellen, the Scottish Jamie, and the Irish MacMorris. This scene reveals that the English identity to which Henry appeals is something of a fiction. Henry is trying to construct that identity by unifying the peoples of the British Isles behind his cause. But the task isn't easy the Scottish and the Welsh rebelled against Henry's father. And when Shakespeare was writing the play, the Irish were rebelling against Queen Elizabeth's attempts to conquer Ireland.
0: She had brought settlers. She had appropriated common land. She had installed a quasi-military system of, of government. And she was faced for nine years with a sustained rebellion by the Earl of Tyrone. This is called in Irish history, the Nine Years' War, or Tyrone's Rebellion. You might have expected McMorris to take the brunt of the satire as a a stage Irishman, but Shakespeare is very gentle with him. So I I do think that at the same time that Shakespeare is implicitly celebrating the possibility of English victory, and he's also softening the, the brute celebration of empire and, and, and humanizing the experience of, of the of the several peoples of England.
1: In spite of quarreling captains and reluctant soldiers, Henry prevails against the French. He delivers a graphically threatening speech to the governor of Harfleur, warning that his blind and bloody soldiers will impale children on pikes dash old men's heads against walls and mow down the women like grass unless the city surrenders. But when the governor does surrender and the English enter the city, Henry orders his men to use mercy to them all. The next scene seems to strike a very different note from the violent confrontations of war. It's a comic scene featuring only female characters. The French Princess Catherine asks her lady-in-waiting, Alice, to teach her English by teaching her the names of parts of the body. Alice makes Catherine blush and laugh when she hears that some English words sound just like sexual slang terms in French. But the scene isn't entirely removed from the scene of surrender we just saw at Halfleur. If the French keep losing the war, Catherine knows that she will be forced to surrender to Henry as his conquest and his wife, which is the reason she wants to learn English.
0: The French are still busily confident and preparing to defeat the English, but Catherine and her lady-in-waiting and Alice have already given up and they're figuring out in French how they're going to speak with their English conquerors.
1: Back in the English army, Bardolph has been sentenced to death for stealing. Although Bardolph is his old friend, Henry declares, we would have all such offenders so cut off. The French Herald arrives, saying that the French will soon destroy the English army and that Henry should consider his ransom. Henry could avoid the risk of being killed in battle if he surrendered to the French as their prisoner to be sent safely home once England paid France a large sum. But although his soldiers are sick and weak, Henry still insists he will face the French in combat. The next battle is at Agincourt. The French officers drink and joke the night before the battle, displaying their vanity and confidence of victory. The English, by contrast, are fearful that they will die the next day. But the chorus tells us that their cold fear is thawed by their king, who goes from tent to tent to visit all his men, calling them brothers, friends and countrymen with such cheerful semblance and sweet majesty that every soldier plucks comfort from his looks. We then watch Henry, concealing himself in a borrowed cloak, go and visit his men in disguise.
0: He's here entering into disguise in order to find out something from the point of view of of the people that he rules and also, in a more sly way, to persuade them to come to his way of thinking about what a king should do.
1: Henry joins three foot soldiers, Bates, Court and Williams, who are reflecting with fear and dread on what will happen the next day. Bates says that he wishes that the king were there alone so that many poor men's lives would be saved. Henry says he believes that the king too feels fear, ''I think the king is but a man as I am,'' he says. But the soldiers insist the king is different from the common people in important ways. If this war is not just, the common soldiers can't be held morally responsible for it. The king, on the other hand, will have a heavy reckoning to make when he's called to account for all the men who died for his unjust cause, especially if they died without atoning for their sins.'' Henry fiercely denies that the king is responsible for the state of his subject's souls. He and Williams fall into disagreement, especially when Williams suggests that the king might allow himself to be ransomed. They exchange gloves as a pledge to fight in a formal challenge if they both come through the battle. Henry then reflects in private on the burdens and responsibilities of kingship. What infinite heart's ease must kings neglect that private men enjoy? Henry also prays that God give his soldiers courage and not punish him or his men for the great sin his father committed long ago. Henry's father, Henry IV, seized the crown from King Richard II and brought about his death.
0: In, in the background is always the forced deposition of Richard II by Henry's father. Henry offers his own penitence on behalf of his father for the deposition and murder of Richard by his family. And Shakespeare is following the historical record here in in recalling that Henry V had Richard reinterred in Westminster Abbey, restored to the royal place that Henry knew belonged to him.
1: The French are gleeful before the battle, wishing the English army were larger so they would have more glory in defeating them. The English too wish their army were larger as they contemplate the terrible odds against them. The French outnumber them five to one but their fears inspire Henry to give his most heroic speech yet. Again, he represents the army as a unified family. He also plays on the idea of shaping history. Reminding his men that it is the feast of St Crispin, he paints a stirring picture of how they will retell the story of their victory on this day. And Crispin Crispian shall ne'er go by from this day to the ending of the world, but we in it shall be remembered. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. Shakespeare dramatizes a few key scenes from the battle. Pistol captures a French soldier and gleefully anticipates a large ransom. The French nobles suffer an initial defeat and lament at their shame. When the French rally their troops, Henry orders his soldiers to kill their French prisoners. We then learn that the French have killed the English boys who were guarding the camp. Finally, the French herald comes to ask Henry's permission for the French to bury their dead. The day is yours, he says. The English have won. Henry attributes their victory to God. Once the battle with the French is over, scores are settled among the English. Henry tells the soldier Williams that it was he, the king, that Williams promised to fight. William pleads for pardon, reminding Henry he did not know he was speaking with the king. Henry fills Williams' glove with gold and returns it to him as an honour. The Welsh captain Fluellen punishes Pistol for all his insubordination by making him eat a leek, a symbol of Wales. Alone, Pistol reveals his own wartime losses – My doll is dead, he says, and his only way to make a living now is to steal. The chorus introduces the final act by inviting the audience to imagine the celebrations when Henry arrives in England. He compares Henry's triumphant return to Caesar returning to Rome after successful conquest and to the general of our gracious empress returning from Ireland.
0: I think this is probably um, the most explicit topical reference in any Shakespeare play. And it refers to the expected return of the Earl of Essex from an expedition to Ireland in 1599 to subdue a rebellion. Essex brought with him almost 20,000 troops. This was the largest military expedition of Elizabeth's reign.
1: The hopefulness with which the play celebrates Essex's return attempts to make Henry's victory at Agincourt the model for future English conquests in Ireland. Henry returns to France to negotiate the terms of peace and to woo Catherine, the French princess he has asked to marry. The scene brings back some of the comedy of Catherine's language lesson as Henry protests that he can only woo clumsily in English and that his wooing becomes even worse in French. It is as easy for me, Kate, to conquer the kingdom as to speak so much more French. I shall never move thee in French unless it be to laugh at me. But the comedy sits alongside a disquieting awareness that Catherine cannot really refuse him. Henry has conquered the kingdom, and she is part of his prize. The French King agrees to all of Henry's demands, including that he marry Catherine and be made heir to the French throne. The play concludes with a final chorus which celebrates the victorious Henry as this star of England, but also reminds the audience in more subdued tones of what came after Henry's conquest. He died young, His son, Henry VI, became king while still a baby, and during his reign, such disputes erupted among his counsellors that they lost France and made his England bleed.
0: All of the, the florid rhetoric of celebration that marked the chorus completely disappears in that last epilogue. It doesn't cancel what happened, but it makes us aware of the lack of control that individual actors have over the course of events. a cycle that begins with Richard II as a disabled monarch ends with Henry's son displaying the same inability to hold his country together, and he literally loses all of the territory that Henry had, had won.
1: The final chorus negotiates uneasily between the play's ongoing attempt to retell history in a particular light and its forced acknowledgement that the past cannot be altered. In the next episode, we'll look more closely at how Shakespeare gives shape to history. We'll also discuss the character whose shape continually seems to shift, the indecipherable figure of Henry himself.